Hang on. We're going to wait for my uh, six-year-old to quit screaming. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash ifreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 106 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. So I, I've been working on a project for the better part of a year uh, with with a couple of friends, and it's called Wired In. And uh, we launched a Kickstarter, well, last week as, a, as we record, but by the time you hear this, it will be a couple weeks old. And um, we've been very pleased with the response, but we still need kind of a push to get to our funding goal. And so I wanted to talk about it on the show. Um, Wired In is a sign that lights up and you can change the colors and you can control it over Bluetooth. And the idea is that when you're sitting at your desk and you're in in the zone, you're working, you don't want to be distracted, you can turn this sign on as a signal to tell people, hey, don't bug me. But we've got a lot of other cool ideas in mind and we've heard from people that are using it for all kinds of cool things. And relevant to listeners of the show is that we're going to release an SDK so that you can write Mac and iOS apps that will control the sign, and um, we're actually also going to release the same kind of thing for Windows and Android, but I don't want to talk about that too much. Um, so go <laughs> check it out. It's called Wired In. It's on Kickstarter. You can find our website with a link to the Kickstarter at wearewired.in. That's my announcement. Awesome. Jane. Hello. I don't have a Kickstarter to announce, but hello <laughs> from Minneapolis. All right. We also have Alondo Brington. Greetings from Goldsboro. I really want one of these signs. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, Warren Moore. Well, hello from uh, beautiful San Francisco. So as usual, uh, can we get a short introduction from you? Sure, absolutely. So I started life as a developer, as a web developer, several years ago and got bored of that pretty quickly. And then I moved into iOS freelancing. Actually, Alondo and I are former co-workers. And uh, then about two years ago, I got hired by Apple on the camera and photos apps team where I was a UI engineer for a little over a year. And then the most recent development is that I left Apple about a year ago and started writing full time for metalbyexample.com, which is my blog all about real time 3D graphics on iOS. So that's the skinny. Awesome. Now, I keep trying to think of jokes like, you know, if you wrote GarageBand and you used metal, then that would be uh, a metal band or uh, 
I don't know. I was trying to come up with one for death metal, but anyway. Well, that, that actually raises a question in my mind, Warren, which is, I'm kind of assuming, maybe I'm wrong, but did you use metal in the photo stuff you did at Apple, or why did you decide to quit and write about metal? That's a great question. I get asked that question a lot. The reason that I left Apple was mostly because of burnout. I just wasn't able to do the work there anymore. And the fact that I picked up metal was really more happenstance than anything that I'd been doing prior to that. I've been fascinated with 3D graphics since I was in middle school, so for more than half of my life. But uh, I quit probably a couple of weeks after WWDC last year, where they announced Metal and where Metal debuted. And I started writing probably about eight weeks later uh, when I went to CocoConf in, uh, I guess that's in Denver. Uh, and Alondo was there. And so he was sort of there at the founding of the blog. But the two are really unrelated. I didn't do much 3D graphics programming in my official capacity at Apple. Okay, yeah. So I I wondered about that. It seemed like a sort of an odd transition, but it actually makes Mm -hmm. more sense now. Yeah, it's something that I've always been passionate about, but I really haven't had the space to explore professionally. So I'm kind of trying to transition into that now. So for for people who aren't familiar with Metal, can you give them a a, a bit of an overview of what it does? Yeah, you know what I what I actually want to do is sort of give a 30,000 foot view of what a graphics API even is and maybe step back even further and talk about what a graphics API is not because it's really difficult to explain what metal is and why it's so great without putting it in this broader context if that's okay with you. Okay. Right now you've got all of these high level 3D game engines like Unity and Unreal are tremendously popular and they basically let you plug in content and write some scripts and you know out the other end pops a game i mean it's obviously not that simple but these are more or less content authoring tools at this point and they don't necessarily require as much low-level programming as game development used to so you have all of these different components that come together in a game engine you have a physics engine you have resource management, you have input, you have audio, you have AI. And 3D rendering is only one component of a game engine. So, you know, and there are a lot of different possible low-level APIs that you can talk to with your, your rendering core. So when we talk about 3D graphics APIs, we're just talking about that one component that talks to the GPU rather than all of these attendant subsystems like, you know, input, resource management, UI, and so forth. Just to put it, that's, so that's, that's the high-level context that I wanted to kind of introduce. Does that all make sense so far? Yes. Okay. So about 25 years ago, there was an API introduced called OpenGL. Perhaps you've heard of it. And uh, it was very much tailored to the hardware of the day. So an essential task of the essential task of a 3D graphics API is to abstract over this type of processor called a graphics processing unit, which we call a GPU, and feed data to it that it then renders to the screen. So basically draws a three-dimensional figure into a two-dimensional image for display on the screen. That's probably one of the most abstract ways to describe what the job of a 3D API is. So OpenGL was introduced in order to provide a high-level API to the graphics hardware of the day. And that basically would allow you to say, okay, here are 
the points that comprise the the triangles you know that make up my scene and you would set some configuration about how those triangles should be lit and shaded and shadowed and textured and then OpenGL would crunch on those numbers and write out the appropriate pixels into the render buffer and initially you would use what was called immediate mode so for every vertex in a triangle you would make a function call to a function called gl vertex and there's a bunch of different flavors of that there's one called you know gl vertex 3f which means you're providing three spatial coordinates x y and z to describe where in 3d space this triangle is and then numerous other function calls later you call gl end and gl finish and it splats all those triangles out to the screen now, something that's very important to note here is that OpenGL is sort of accumulating these vertices as you submit them into buffers that it manages. So it's doing all this memory management behind the scenes for you. So that that has a certain amount of overhead associated with it. And as time went on, OpenGL accumulated additional functions for sort of submitting batches of vertices at once and drawing from arrays that have already been uploaded into graphics memory and over time, it has sort of sprawled out and become, it's an API with a very, very large surface area. So there is a modern subset of it that you can use. But a lot of the complaints that are currently targeted at OpenGL have to do with the fact that it's a very old API. And so it's got all this historical cruft sort of hanging on to it. So that's OpenGL in a nutshell. Makes sense it, to me. So, of course, there's also a variant of OpenGL that lives on iOS called OpenGL ES which is uh, also supported on Android. And it doesn't have quite as much historical baggage as OpenGL on the desktop. But nevertheless, it does have this legacy of hiding things like state changes and memory copies from you, which sort of reduces performance in very subtle ways that are very hard to get around because so much of this is implicit. So if there are two great sins that OpenGL commits. It's probably implicit memory management. Uh, you don't know when memory is going to get copied or how it's going to get copied. You have little influence over when memory gets shuttled around. And the bigger sin is that whenever you set up state, so state might be, you know, whenever you switch textures, which texture you're going to be using on a model, whether you're doing blending, that is whether you need transparency and setting up all these different parameters that affect the scene that you're rendering OpenGL does a lot of work behind the scenes to validate that set of state. And it does this at runtime every time you make a draw call. Uh, and that has a certain amount of overhead because it's certainly possible when you're setting basically global state from anywhere inside your rendering core to wind up in an inconsistent state. So OpenGL has to do a lot of work to make sure that everything is consistent before it actually attempts to draw anything, lest it crash the driver. And so those are the two woes that Metal actually seeks to address explicitly. I know you're kind of leading into talking about how Metal addresses those. Before we get to that, I'm, I know OpenGL is, well, I think it's C, right? It's a C API, but I, I think That's a right. lot of people sort of think of it as almost its own, you know, sort of language, its own variant of C because you're just using OpenGL API so heavily. Mm-hmm. What about Metal? How is Metal C? Is it Objective-C, C++? How, how, how does the API just look at a language level? Because I think OpenGL is really intimidating to a lot of people <laughs> who have never done it before. Yeah, it's extremely intimidating, and doubly so just because the API surface area is so huge. I mean, there are hundreds of C API calls that you can make into OpenGL, 
Metal, by contrast, is an Objective-C API, and it has a very, very small surface area. There are only maybe, you know, a dozen or so core classes that you're talking to. And just the, the number of concepts, the number of moving parts is somewhat smaller with Metal, despite the fact that it is a lower level API and then it provides you more direct access to the hardware. Yeah. Well, that, I like the sound of that. Objective-C <laughs> sounds good to me. Yeah. I mean, it seems surprising that you wouldn't, you know, just write a foundation or a core foundation style C API if you want to get the most out of your GPU. But in fact, the call overhead in Objective-C is dwarfed by things like the bandwidth to the GPU and the, the uh, performance cost of actually doing all the drawing. So you're actually conducting relatively few Objective-C method calls in order to do a lot of work on the GPU. And there are a couple of other things that I want to talk about, namely the programmable pipeline and also what a GPU actually does foundationally. And all of this is going to lead into an actual discussion of metal. I promise it's just that there is quite a lot of preface that's needed to really talk about it in depth. So back when OpenGL was introduced, all of uh, the graphics hardware that was available at the time was what we call fixed function, meaning that it's configurable, but you don't write the software that runs directly on the GPU. So you can say, for example, in GL, you say you can configure a light by calling a function called GL light and passing various parameters to it. You can configure the material of the current thing being drawn with GL material. And all the actual code that runs on the GPU is implicit in the driver, and it takes these parameters that you provide and renders using them basically as parameters uh, in this fixed function sort of pipeline. And now, I guess in the past decade or so, we've introduced what's called the programmable pipeline, where certain phases, certain stages of the graphics pipeline are entirely programmable by the graphics programmer. So what does that mean? So you can you are responsible, in fact, for writing what's called a vertex shader, which takes all of these 3D points that you specify in 3D space and multiplies them through by these matrices, the purpose of which is to transform them so that they're in the 2D space, screen space, that the, the eye actually sees. And that's now the obligation of the graphics programmer, whereas previously that was a lot of that was handled by, by OpenGL and higher-level graphics frameworks. And then you have what are called pixel shaders or fragment shaders, whose responsibility is to determine the color of every pixel that winds up in the render buffer by doing things like reading from textures and uh, manipulating colors, doing lighting and things like that on a per pixel basis. So the role of graphics programmers has changed somewhat from being you know, state machine configurers to being GPU programmers. It's a very important shift that's happened uh, over the past decade. And so OpenGL has a shading language called GLSL, which is derived from C. And Metal has a shading language, which doesn't have a different name. It's just the Metal shading language uh, that's derived from C++11. So a big part of graphics programming these days is writing these shaders that kind of get plugged in at various stages uh, along the graphics pipeline and execute more or less directly on the GPU. So when we're talking about a shader, what does it actually do? Yeah, great question. So just to, to walk through the pipeline, you uh, you describe your 3D world in terms of triangles. And the reason we use triangles is because they're 
simple, right? Every every three points unambiguously define a triangle. Whereas if you tried to draw, say, a quadrilateral, you've submitted four points that were non-coplanar, then that has all kinds of weird pathologies. So graphics hardware from the very beginning has been angled toward drawing triangles, and it's very, very good at drawing triangles. And so you go through this vertex shader stage, uh, like I mentioned earlier, that takes these triangles that all have XYZ coordinates and are sitting off in some coordinate space that you then have to, you know, position a virtual camera in the midst of your scene, which is represented by a matrix. And then you have another matrix that represents the actual foreshortening process. So turning, uh, you know, a 3D scene into a 2D image essentially has to emulate certain aspects of the human visual system such as vanishing points and and foreshortening. And so we model all of this with matrices. And so the the role of the vertex shader is to apply those matrices and spit out more or less two-dimensional vertices that are in this sort of special space that the the graphics hardware can handle. And then it goes through a non-programmable stage called rasterization, where those triangles that are now sort of sitting in this two-dimensional screen space get chopped up and converted into pixels. And then those pixels, more or less, are passed to your fragment shader, where you consult textures and where you consult various information that you've passed along through the pipeline in order to do lighting and shading and texturing and things like that. So there's two programmable stages in the graphics pipeline, vertex shading and fragment shading. And vertex shading is responsible for basically turning the 3D scene into a 2D picture and the fragment shader is responsible for determining exactly what color each pixel winds up being in the final image. Is that a decent overview? I think so. So if I want to model a car, I would get a 3D model of the car from a 3D designer. I would import that into the app, and mm-hmm. the vertex shader actually lays it out. And because it's 3D, we can like look all the way around it, but we need to pick one vantage point. Mm-hmm. So we pick a camera angle. Is that the right term? Uh, a camera, camera position and camera orientation would be the, the parameters there. Yeah. Okay. So that, that tells us what view to actually, you know, render to the screen because that screen's 2D. Mm-hmm. And the, the vertex shader, or the other shaders, they would do things like, okay, since it's farther away, it might be a little bit darker. Let's make that. Sure. Yeah. So what you, uh, what you do in practice is every vertex carries along not just its position, but any other parameters that you might need to inform how it should look on the screen. So for example, you can pass along a color that determines how it looks and you can pass along a special kind of vector called a normal. And a normal vector just indicates how the surface is oriented at that point. So kind of like if you had a sphere, then at every point, the normal points outward, points basically, it's it's orthogonal to or perpendicular to the surface at every point. So you can pass along these normals and then those are a very important component of shading because, you know, if you look at an object in the real world, for example, how that surface is oriented relative to the nearby lights uh, informs how light reflects off of that surface. So you actually have to do, you have to account for these, you know, the physical reality of the universe if you want to create plausible 3D scenes. So yeah, but you can carry along whatever information you need with each vertex in order to do whatever fancy lighting and and so forth calculations you want to do on the GPU. Very cool. So uh, so let's talk a little bit about what uh, what Metal actually does now that we've sort of given an overview of uh, of what 3D graphics is. 
So by far the biggest win that you get with metal is pre-computed render states. And so what I mean by that is, whereas previously I was talking about how in OpenGL, each time you do your drawing, you set all this global state that informs OpenGL about the lights and the materials and various other things. With metal, a lot of what you do is offline. So you would build what's called a, uh, a render pipeline state and you specify offline or early, at, basically at initialization time, which vertex shaders and which fragment shaders and a few other parameters. And those all get compiled into this intermediate representation, and, uh, which you then reference later on when you're doing your drawing. So in contrast to GL, where you're constantly doing the state validation, with Metal, you pay the cost of state validation once up front, and then you can reuse these state bundles for future rendering. So that's one way in which Metal substantially reduces the CPU overhead of graphics rendering. And another big win with Metal is explicit memory management. So you already have this big advantage when you're on a mobile device that you're on a shared memory architecture. So the CPU and the GPU are looking at the same RAM. They may have their own on-die caches, their L1 and L2 caches, but essentially when they have a pointer, that refers to the same physical memory, which is really important. So what this allows you to do is greatly reduce the number of copies that happen both implicitly and explicitly in the sense that you can allocate a chunk of memory on the CPU and then write vertex data or whatever you need to into it and then just hand metal a pointer more or less and say, don't copy this. This is where you're going to be looking for your vertex data. And that saves you. There are no, there are really no implicit copies whatsoever. You really are responsible for synchronizing access to these buffers in memory, which is a big obligation, but is also a huge win for performance because there simply are no there's no copies happening under the covers as there always were with uh, with OpenGL. Do these two things uh, having, I think you said functions, right? They're called functions in Metal. Mm-hmm. Um, having those get compiled down and then also this making memory management so that it's not implicit. Um, these are obviously done for performance, but h- how much of a performance benefit is there? So what's the win over OpenGL? Sure. So in order to, to answer that, I kind of have to recourse to this abstract notion called a draw call. So a draw call is basically what happens when you submit actual geometry to be rendered. So you configure your your pipeline and then you submit geometry in a draw call. And the marketing speak around Metal when it debuted was you will get the ability to submit 10 times as many draw calls. That's an upper bound, but that is a way of expressing how much Metal reduces the CPU overhead. So, for example, I think the Unity engine, they said they saw something like a 40 to 60% reduction in CPU overhead versus OpenGL ES on modern iPhone hardware. So what you can do with that savings in CPU time, which is basically waste because it's going to state validation and memory copying, is you can submit a whole lot more geometry and more varied geometry because you can substitute in new pre-compiled render state bundles at very low cost and then draw, you know, for example, you might draw geometry that represents a tank and then draw geometry that represents terrain and then draw geometry that represents a particle system. And you can rapidly switch among all of these pre-compiled state bundles and then submit your geometry. 
And the big win with metal is that you can, as an upper bound, submit up to 10 times as much, not as much geometry, but as many make all these different draw calls with different state configurations, which gives you, it's a big performance win. And it's also, uh, it also allows you to be a little bit more flexible and creative uh, with your art because these state changes are cheaper, basically. Okay, so it sounds like this is not just a sort of marketing speak theoretical thing. It actually does make for a big performance boost, even in a real world. Absolutely so. Yeah, you could just take a look at the Epic Zen Garden demo that was released around the time of WWDC last year and see just these amazing, gorgeous, dense particle uh, systems that would not be possible to render with OpenGL ES. And there are not a whole lot of games, but there are definitely a handful of games on the App Store that have just gorgeous graphics that are actually enabled by the the savings in GPU time and uh, uh, and efficiency that you get with Metal. So how do you know if your app is going to be well-suited to something like this? Yeah, so if you're currently draw call constrained, as we say, so in other words, if you feel limited by the amount of geometry that you're able to render in your game, or if you are having to be ultra conservative about the number of different, say, materials or the number of different uh, state changes that you're performing. And if you're pegged on the CPU is another really important thing, because again, uh, OpenGL is going to eat a big chunk of uh, CPU time whenever you're rendering uh, in order to do all of this overhead. So if you're if you're CPU bound or if you're draw call bound, then it's possible that Metal will provide you some benefits. Is there a way to test it out without completely converting your app over? Uh, good question. I, I don't know. I guess you could use a profiler that indicates, because you know in, in Xcode you can, you can open up that side pane and it will tell you if you're running at 60 FPS or not, and it'll show you the allocation of time mm-hmm. between the tiler, the renderer, and the CPU. Uh, and if you're, if you're pegging the CPU and the GPU, then there's a pretty good chance that Metal will be a win because it's going to reduce your CPU consumption. So something I'm kind of just wondering about, I'm not really sure how this works out, but Metal, of course, is iOS only. It's not mm-hmm. cross-platform the way OpenGL is, but it seems like games in particular are one kind of app that are, in general, historically have lent themselves very well to being cross-platform, partly because OpenGL is cross-platform, but also um, just because games are typically not really tied into a particular platform UI conventions or anything like that. So it seems like a hard sell to lock yourself into using Metal, meaning you can only support iOS and a lot of games want to support Android and, and whatever. Is there any solution to that? So is there short of just writing all the graphics stuff twice? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it bears mentioning, by the way, that not only is Metal iOS 8 only, it is constrained to devices that have A7 and A8 processors. So it's really anything prior to the iPhone 5S uh, is not capable of running Metal. So it is, there is a very small subset. And I recognize as, you know, a full-time author about Metal, you know, that I'm hawking this stuff but I'm really occupying a niche of a niche. I'm, you know, speaking to low-level graphics programmers and people that are exclusively targeting iOS 8 and above. That's a pretty small market. And the way I think this actually works out in practice is you have these middleware authors like Epic, like Unity, like all the other middleware and game engine producers who already have this proliferation of rendering backends that speak to DirectX, that speak to whatever the graphics library on the PlayStation is, uh, that speak to OpenGL. 
And they're architected so that these renderers are pluggable. So when Metal came out, within a few months, Unity had a Metal backend. So by using one of these middleware solutions, you're getting all the benefits of Metal without actually having to write a line of Metal code yourself. So that would be, you know, I'm whenever I'm talking, whenever I'm writing about Metal, I understand that I'm addressing two very different markets, and that is middleware authors for whom it makes sense because they operate at scale to write metal rendering backends and also very curious amateurs because uh, metal is never going to well i shouldn't say never metal uh, in its current incarnation is not a cross-platform api will not be a cross-platform api targeting say windows and, and android and so forth so the major benefits of metal are where you can get a middleware author to incorporate it and then just sort of use it implicitly in your own work. I don't imagine that there are going to be just a huge number of people writing metal code themselves, but the, they are the people that I most care about, right? So in that second group, outside of the middle authors, the, the curious amateurs, I mean, is this something that, you know, only for game developers, or can I take advantage of metal? Do I get any advantage of using it for any other types of applications on iOS? You you want yeah. those wicked fast table views, right? <laughs> <laughs> 3D table views. Go yes. for it. Write a, write a metal backend for async display kit. That would be something else. Or React Native for that matter. I don't know if anybody's doing that. That'd be pretty cool. Um, yeah, actually, you bring up a really important point, which is what else can metal do besides 3D graphics? We've been very, very fixated on 3D graphics so far. But it's important to realize what a GPU actually is in contrast to a CPU. So, I mean, a CPU and the operating system that sits on top of it are good at task parallelism. So you've got all these myriad processes and threads running in parallel, but they're all doing different things. Whereas a GPU is specially designed to have dozens or hundreds of processors or cores that are all doing the same thing simultaneously. And this is really good for graphics processing because, and by the way, this is, this is called data parallel programming in contrast to task parallel programming. So when you're rendering say, a triangle to the screen, you've got, you know, maybe thousands of pixels that comprise an especially large triangle on the screen. And they're all going to be running the same shader code, but the data is going to be different for each pixel. So GPUs are special purpose designed to basically do floating point operations in parallel really, really fast. But each of these little shader cores is, for example, when you have an if statement in a shader, it's not as though this little shader core takes one branch or the other. It actually executes both and then masks out the result of the branch that should not have been taken. This is in contrast to a processor that when it sees a conditional, you know, it takes one branch or the other. Uh, This is kind of a quirk of GPU architecture that's in service of the fact that GPUs are designed to do basically the same operation in a massively parallel fashion. So all of this leads into what we call compute programming or GPGPU, which is general purpose processing on graphics processing units. And Metal actually has explicit support for compute processing that has nothing whatsoever to do with graphics programming, because what you can do is put all of your all the data that needs to be processed in parallel into buffers and write a special kind of shader called a kernel function which operates on every unit or every element in a buffer. And you can perform any arbitrary computation that can be expressed in the C language pretty much on each element in the buffer. And then 
you can write that out to another buffer or you can manipulate, you go on to manipulate it in whatever way you see fit. So when you talk about, you know, what else can I, can I use metal for? You could, for example, do physics on the GPU by casting your, you know, dynamics equations as a GPU program. You could, in theory, do massively parallel processing of rigid body dynamics and fluid simulation. You can do image processing, fast Fourier transforms, matrix calculations at very, very large scales and really sort of use the whole animal by involving the GPU in these large scale computations. So it shouldn't be missed that Metal is not just 3D graphics. It, is, it also has a very important compute component. Okay, so you could justify using Metal for doing FFTs. And that's you know, basically sound or wavelengths. Yeah. Okay, so it doesn't yeah. have to be graphics. Not at all. You could definitely do signal processing. And what's nice about that is that it's going to be substantially faster than running equivalent processes on the CPU once you sort of cross a threshold, once you cross the, the bandwidth threshold of basically loading this data into the GPU, if your problem size is larger than, say, like 10,000 elements, as it often is in audio signal processing, then yeah, compute shaders can be a win for you in cases like that. Okay, yeah, 10,000 samples, quarter of a second, something like that? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know exactly uh, what the story is as far as if you were to, say, process audio samples with metal and then try to feed them to an audio unit or other core audio thing, uh, there may be too much latency to actually do, to try to use the GPU for real-time audio processing uh, from just what I've heard of people that have tried to do it. But, you know, for doing, I mean, in theory, doing transcoding or doing effects offline, it could be a, a good fit for something like that. Yeah. If you want to do like a frequency analysis, FFT. Frequency analysis would be, would be another example, absolutely, yeah. So if I want to, Build my first metal app, do something 3D. How do you get started? Like, what, What's the first step? It's really hard to talk about the, the hello world of metal because there are so many moving parts. First of all, I do have to plug my blog, uh, metalbyexample.com, where I do try to... I, I wrote an article series uh, starting in August of last year that tries to lay bare all of the different things that go into building a very rudimentary metal app but i can i can give you try to give you an overview so if you want to let's say you just want to draw one triangle to the screen that's sort of the the equivalent of hello world in a, a 3d graphics api so just to give you a rundown of that what you would do is you would create a metal device which is a type of object that abstracts the gpu and it conforms to this protocol called mtl device and then you would create something called a command queue and a command queue is a thing that serializes work that's going to be executed on the GPU. It's a serial queue. And what goes into a command queue is uh, a sequence of command buffers. And these command buffers are, they consist of encoded instructions. So one element of a command buffer might say, you know, change the background color to this. And another might say, draw this sequence of, of triangles. And, but it's expressed in a very terse binary format that the GPU can easily unpack. And the way you translate between human speak, like draw this triangle, and what actually goes into a command buffer is uh, through an object called a command encoder. So a command in, a render command encoder has uh, a number of methods on it that allow you to expressly say draw vertices out of this buffer with these indices and so forth. And that's what gets encoded into a command buffer and placed on a command queue. So that's sort of one aspect of how you get stuff into the pipeline. 
But then in order to inform Metal of which shaders to use, we build one of these things that I mentioned earlier, uh, which is a render pipeline state. So you've written your vertex shader and your fragment shader in this C++-derived shading language. You pass the, the source code to Metal, it gets compiled, and you get handles to those functions, and you pass those to your render pipeline state. And the render pipeline state is something you set on your command encoder to inform it which shaders should be run uh, as part of the processing. Um, so that's two kind of components. And then uh, in order to actually get anything on the screen, you have to interface with UIKit. And there is a special CA layer subclass called CA Metal Layer that is able to basically hand you these, these textures, really, that you can draw into, uh, these renderable textures. And those, that's another thing that you configure on uh, your command encoder, roughly speaking, when you're, uh, when you're doing drawing. So at the end of all of this, you... Oh, by the way, you also have vertices copied into this thing called an MTL buffer, which is basically a raw pointer that you can copy into that you can then tell Metal about. So you basically say, at the end of all this, you know, draw triangles from this buffer using the drawable texture that I specified, using the render state pipeline that I specified, and then you basically end encoding on your command encoder, which packages all that up into GPU commands, and then you present the, the texture to be drawn, and you commit your command encoder. So at the end of all of these 25,000 steps, that draws a triangle on the screen. So that's sort of the a relatively high-level view of all the work that goes into drawing one triangle with metal. And uh, there are only a few other related concepts that you need to understand before you're doing fancy things like lighting and texturing. But it's very intimidating to write a Hello World. But I, I tried to, in my introductory articles, make it as comprehensible and as simple as it can possibly be, but no simpler. Sounds are good. Yeah, as far as Hello Worlds go, I'm expecting drag this button onto this view controller. Done. No, I, sinc- great. I sincerely wish it were that easy. <laughs> but if you can if you can get over the initial intimidation of there being like all of these unfamiliar concepts, especially if you're coming into this with a not particularly strong background in you know, linear algebra, matrix multiplication, and uh, fundamentals of 3D graphics. If you can just sort of face that and learn bit by bit, it's actually really, really cool. You can you can do some really awesome stuff. Now, one of the wins, or how we get the performance gains with Metal, is that we're actually, we actually share the memory between the CPU and the GPU. Mm-hmm. Are there any patterns for, like, multi-threading? I, I get worried if I say, hey, I, I got this memory in the state I want it here, go use it. Yeah. How, how do you handle multi-threading? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, and a really important topic that I probably do not write enough about. So, okay, so you're, you have these buffers and they, they contain your vertex data. And the last thing that you want to do is be writing into a buffer while metal is trying to draw it onto the screen, right? That's sort of the, the concern that you have. And so what you can do is basically keep several buffers in memory and write into one as you're drawing from another. And you can control access to these buffers by use of a, a semaphore, really. So that you just use whatever your usual multi-threading, uh, multi-processing primitives are to essentially control access to the data that will be used by the GPU. And Metal is pretty GCD-friendly in the sense that you can tell a command encoder, or a command buffer, rather, when you're done executing, call this block. So that block callback that you get uh, is where you can 
basically signal your semaphore and say, all right, I'm done with this buffer that was on queued for rendering. Now I can start writing new stuff into it and just basically run it as a circular buffer or just switch among these various disconnected buffers in memory. So that's that's sort of how you you make sure the trains don't run into one another. It's really just, you know, multi-threading 101. Just uh, make sure that you're not writing into memory that's being read elsewhere. And it's actually fairly straightforward as long as you are submitting rendering calls from a single thread, for example, from the main thread. It's not too terribly hard. You can do it with just one semaphore that sort of signals to you when a buffer frees up for to be written into. Do you have to worry about what thread your... Obviously, the UI code has to be run on the on the UI thread, but does mm-hmm. another code have to be running on the main thread? Uh, not necessarily. So a middle command queue, which is one of these sort of fundamental objects that I mentioned, is an inherently thread-safe object. So you can, if you're on a background thread, you can ask for one of these command encoders and command buffers, and then whenever you end encoding and commit to the, the command queue, that will be handled in a thread-safe fashion. It gets a little bit tricky if you want to perform rendering in the same render path across multiple threads. There is a specialized render command encoder called a parallel render command encoder that allows you to do that, but that is a fairly advanced technique, and it really only buys you performance when you're really constrained by the CPU and you need to be able to do work across multiple CPU threads in order to submit all your geometry to the GPU. But yes, you can definitely perform these rendering commands on on a background thread. But obviously then that entails whatever additional complexity is inherent in in every multi-threaded app. And all that is incumbent on you. Metal provides very little in the way of safety when it comes to being thread safe. Very cool. Warren, so you're you're writing this book, but do you have any plans or are you actually using Metal in a in an app that you're going to release or anything like that? So I toy around with the idea of writing an engine or a game, but frankly, where I derive my pleasure from metal is just learning about sort of cutting edge rendering techniques and exploring the ways in which those can be sort of cast into, you know, just sort of one off metal projects that I can then share with other people. I haven't really thought too much about what comes next, and I haven't actually built any really substantial large-scale game or engine project with Metal yet. I don't have any particular designs on that. But I hope that I'm helping other people do it, and the feedback that I receive seems to indicate that I am. So you are hearing from people that are, are using Metal then, I take it. I'm, oh, I'm kind of trying absolutely. to get a sense of how you know widely adopted this has become, because it was only announced less than a year ago. Right. So you can check out the Apple Developer Forums, there is a metal-specific forum, and the conversation there is pretty vibrant. It's always going to be, at least for the in the meantime, because it is iOS 8-specific and specific to these, these newer devices, it's not going to see as broad of an adoption as something like OpenGL ES. But for a certain class of people, it was, it was a godsend. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun to uh, play with it and and push these devices, you know, to the to the absolute maximum. I mean, it's important to realize that Metal was created in order to unlock the potential of the GPUs that sit inside these devices, and there really is no other way to get that low level and that high performance. Um, you're not going to get there with OpenGL ES. So for the applications that absolutely demand it, Metal really is is essential. Right now, Metal is is only on iOS, and I'm curious as a Mac developer if there's any 
reason for it to come to OS 10. And also I'm sure we, of course, are just at Apple's mercy on this, but um, <laughs> is there any, you know, sort of demand for something like this on OS 10 or does it not make as much sense? I would love to see metal on OS 10. There would have to be some changes to the API just because desktops at this point are, you know, they have, can have multiple GPUs, for example. So you would need a way of selecting among them or, you know, distributing work onto them. Uh, I think that could be done in a fairly elegant way. And one of Metal's big wins, of course, is the fact that, you know, there is this shared memory architecture on iOS devices. You would need probably some way of explicitly shuttling memory around if you were to create Metal for, for OS X. But there's no fundamental reason why the API couldn't be ported with a few changes. But there are all these other interesting, exciting directions as well that's going on in the, in the 3D graphics world. I mean, with, uh, with DirectX 12 and with, uh, with modern OpenGL, the OpenGL 4, uh, 4.5 coming around the corner and Mantle and Vulkan and all these new uh, entirely new low-level graphics APIs coming down the pike. It's really an exciting time to see uh, how these APIs are going to evolve in the future. But yeah, in my happiest world, Metal becomes uh, an OS 10 API. Uh, I have no idea if that's actually going to happen, if that's the direction that, that Apple intends to go in. All right, well, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there any other aspect of Metal that we haven't talked about that's kind of critical to understanding it? I think I've probably spoken my piece. I, I hit all the all the bullet points that I had, although not necessarily in the intended order, but happy to address any further questions. The only other question I have is it seems that you have kind of this deep knowledge of how graphics rendering works, and we really couldn't do it justice within this hour. Is there a place or a list of places where people can go to kind of bone up on that if they really want to know a little bit more about it? Yeah, just to, just to speak to the, the broader question first, there are definitely easier ways to get into 3D graphics programming. You have this bevy of APIs on both iOS and OS X that can provide a much smoother entree to 3D graphics. You've got uh, SceneKit on, I guess it's definitely on, yeah, I think it's on both uh, OS X and iOS. Uh, you've got SpriteKit, you've got, uh, heck, just play around with like core animation and you'll learn some things, right? So what you can do there is sort of explore what it means to create a 3D scene and uh, and do some rendering without actually having to get your hands dirty with shaders right off the bat. And then when you want to get more serious with it, there are a lot of really good books on the subject. And, you know, the sky's the limit as far as how far you want to go with this. But I'm looking at my bookshelf. I've got a book by Eric Lingle called Mathematics for 3D Game Programming and Computer Graphics. And that's a fantastic introduction to uh, all the mathematics that goes uh, into graphics programming. And then as far as learning APIs, uh, there's the OpenGL programming guide and uh, some higher level books by people like David Eberly. Mike McShaffrey would be another. So basically, you know, seek out tutorials that actually, you know, cover some of the fundamentals and then you can go from there because, you know, I've been working with this stuff for almost 15 years now and uh, I still feel like there's so much more that I have to learn uh, than I have already learned. Uh, and some days I feel like I've forgotten more than I know. But, you know, I think in order to actually get anywhere uh, with a low-level API, you actually probably need to have, you know, a project that you're trying to achieve. It's very difficult to learn this stuff in the abstract because there's just very little motivation that comes from that. So uh, if you've got a game idea, prototype it out in something like SceneKit. 
uh, and then drill down into something like OpenGL, GLKit, or Metal, whatever suits you. But unfortunately, there's no fast road. But if people want to get in touch with me, I'm happy to uh, provide you know, tailored lists of resources to help you learn. And then did you say you had written a book on this? I am writing a book on this. Uh, it will hopefully be out relatively soon. Um, I'm actually waiting for Dub Dub 2015 so that I can make whatever late-breaking changes need to occur, do some rewriting around uh, what comes out uh, in the, the next iteration of iOS, and then hoping to publish both as an ebook and a soft cover probably around the middle of this year. But I'm continuing to write articles on metalbyexample.com on a more or less weekly basis. And so that's where you can you can see a lot of that material. The The book is going to be based in large part on on what I've already published there. All right. The book, the blog, anything else that we should know about as far as uh, finding you or getting a hold of you? You can email me at wm at warrenmore.net or you can feel free to leave comments on uh, metalbyexample.com. Anything that's unclear, uh, anything that trips you up with the uh, with the content, please let me know. I want to make sure it's as clearly explained as it possibly can be. And yeah, I try to help people who are trying to get into this stuff. Uh, I try to help them along as, as much as I possibly can. So I provide a lot of hands-on support. And uh, I think that's a, that's a valuable use of my time because, uh, you know, this is my passion and I want to help uh, as many people as possible learn about it and, uh, and use it to its uh, fullest capacity. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Olando, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Uh, my first pick is actually in service of learning some of the one of the simpler APIs. Um, I'm actually working on a game with my nephew uh, right now, and we are using the iOS Games by Tutorial uh, book from RayWindowLook.com to uh, get started. He's already storyboarded everything, so I'm pretty excited about it because I'm a, a newbie when it comes to uh, graphics programming and gaming in general. So I think it's a, it, the, so far it's been really an easy read and, and great tutorials there. My second pick is the new Raspberry Pi. Actually thought that my, uh, I ordered a couple, thought they were actually going to show up before the show started, but I'm still waiting for them to be delivered. So, uh, a local software dev group, uh, we have a, a project that we wanted to do with some students. And so we ordered a few so we could get started. So, uh, the new Raspberry Pi has more memory. Um, it's, uh, it's faster. And I think it's going to service us quite well in this project. So those are my two picks. Very cool. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Sure. I've got a few picks today. My first pick is sort of predictable because it's, uh, it's an, actually an article written by Warren, but it's, it's an objective CIO article that he wrote with, uh, Max Christ about metal. And it gives a good overview for somebody who doesn't already know all about graphics engines and OpenGL. And so this is just a great introduction if you want to sort of learn more in written form. And it's in issue 18, which was all about games. Um, and then my second pick is actually another Objective CIO thing, which is the newest issue, which just came out a day or two ago. And it's all about audio, which is a subject kind of near and dear to me. And there, in particular, there's an article by Chris Lissio called Functional Signal Processing Using Swift. That's all about doing audio signal processing using functional programming in Swift. And there's some pretty cool stuff in there. It's actually a, a use for functional programming that I hadn't exactly thought of, but it's pretty perfect. So those are two objective CIO picks. And then my last pick is something that Warren just mentioned, which is SceneKit. And SceneKit's a framework for doing 3D graphics on, it was on OS 10 and then they put it on iOS a couple versions ago too. So it's on both platforms and it's an Objective-C API. It's very Cocoa-like. If you're already an iOS programmer, this is actually, SceneKit is actually really easy to jump into and get started with. And yet it's a fairly deep 
powerful API. So it's a good way to kind of learn some of these basics of 3D graphics, not so much the low level stuff, but in terms of, you know, putting objects in a scene and lighting them and camera and animation and physics and all that stuff. But there's plenty of power there too when you want it, including custom shaders, which I've never tried, but you can write shaders for scene kit. So those are my picks. All right, James, do you have some picks for us? Sure. I've got one pick and I'm going to do a beer pick. So if people listening for the show long enough, they realize that I'm a big fan of the German beers. Most of them. I like them a lot, but it's hard to get, you know, you're not really sure what you're going to get a lot of times. You know, Spaten or Apollinary, the light beers may have been sitting around for a while. And a lot of times they're in green bottles and kind of skunky. And most of the American breweries just don't really do that great a job with the lagers, especially the German style ones. But I had one about a week ago from Victory, who has done a number of really good lagers. But the Victory Hellas Lager is fantastic. They're out of Pennsylvania, I believe, something like that. But they're available in quite a number of places. So if you want a good German-style beer uh, brewed by an American company, uh, Victory Hellas Lager. Cool. I've got a couple of picks. The first one is I'm putting on another remote conference for Rubyists. So if you're into Ruby, go check out rubyremoteconf.com. I also picked up the Ruby Motion Book, which is a way of writing iOS and Android apps with Ruby. They're native apps, natively compiled apps, and I'm really enjoying it. I don't know why, but for some reason it seems to make a bit more sense to me than some of the Swift or Objective-C stuff. I can do that stuff, but this just, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's Ruby. Anyway, I'm really enjoying that, so I'm going to pick Ruby Motion. And then I'm going to pick a podcast if you're new or newish to programming or if you're just interested in hearing cool interviews with cool code people. Go check out the Code Newbie podcast by Saran Yitbark. It's terrific. She interviews all kinds of people, asks terrific questions. The last one that I listened to was kind of a roundtable with her and Scott Hanselman and uh, one of the other people that she was in the boot camp or the startup camp that she was in. And anyway, it's just they're, they're just great conversations about code. So uh, go check that out. They also do a Twitter chat every Wednesday. And those are my picks. Warren, do you have some picks for us? I have one pick for you today. I'm going to keep it simple. So you may have heard of a game called Smash Hit. It got a lot of accolades last year. Uh, but the team that created it, uh, who's called Mediocre, uh, have put out another game called Does Not Commute. And it is this zany sort of... Uh, driving simulation sort of top down uh, where you are responsible for conducting people as they go along their uh, daily commutes and the twist of it is that you control one driver at a time but as you progress through the game the drivers that you have instructed along their path interact with the drivers that you are currently instructing so it sort of builds over time and uh, you know cars can crash into each other and uh, uh, sort of like a race against the clock to get everybody to their uh, to their destination safely and all the crazy physics hijinks contrast uh, really kind of cutely with this sort of 70s pastoral sort of pastel kind of game aesthetic. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So new from Mediocre does not commute. Highly recommended. That just sounds like fun. It's brilliant. All right. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for talking to us about this. And hopefully it helps a few people figure out how to make their apps faster. Yeah, it's absolutely been a pleasure chatting with you guys. All right, well, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. 
bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. To deliver your content fast with Cashfly, visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 